Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On tonight's podcast, we marked 70 years since the armistice that ended the fighting in the Korean War, a conflict often called the Forgotten War. We look into the legacy of it and Canada's involvement and why so many of the 26,000 Canadians who fought there had to fight again for their service and their sacrifice to be given proper recognition at home. The bluefin tuna is now one of the most prized and expensive catches on the world market. So why hasn't it been fished right into extinction? We meet the author of a new book called Kings of Their Ocean, Tuna, Obsession, and the Future of Our Seas to help us dive into the history, mystery, and majesty of the bluefin. But first, on paper, Canada's economy seems to be proving more resilient than expected. And yet, as a new report from TD points out, if you look under the hood, those numbers don't jibe with reality for an increasing number of Canadians. And here's why. Our standard of living, per capita GDP in other words, is steadily falling behind other advanced economies we like to compare ourselves to. From the third highest in 1967 to 15th or 16th today. Why and how do you reverse the decline? Speaking of the economy, on paper, you may have seen headlines that Canada's economy is proving to be more resilient than expected, right? We had the strongest growth amongst G7 countries in the first quarter of 2023. It's slowing down a bit or slowed down a bit in the second quarter. Unemployment uh, rose a bit in June to 5.4%, the highest it's been in more than a year, but still not far off those record lows we were seeing a few years ago. And yet, a new report from TD points out, if you look under the hood, If you really look under the hood, those numbers don't jibe with reality for a lot of us. And here's why. Things are obviously getting more expensive, but our standard of living is falling behind other advanced economies. As my next guest likes to point out, back in 1967, uh, we were the third richest country in the world when measured by GDP per capita. Today, we're not. We're more like 15th or 16th. And it ties... It really, what it what it's all about is lagging prosperity. It's a long-standing productivity issue or issues that have eaten away at our economy for years now. So not just one government, but it's been happening for quite a while. The report say the report says the underperformance accelerated after the 2014-15 oil price shock. Of course, commodity-rich provinces uh, do well here. Our you know their their per capita GDP is higher. And it's continued in the wake of the pandemic, and little turnaround appears to be on the horizon. Uh, again, it's not; it doesn't seem to be the direct fault of any one policy. This is something that's been going on for quite a while. But you could be forgiven for thinking that the current government hasn't done a whole lot to alleviate it. Pandemic, of course, considered. Uh, and Christia Freeland, the finance minister, was talking about this exact stuff as she spoke after that big cabinet overhaul that was announced in Ottawa yesterday. We have to deliver the homes, the infrastructure, the jobs, the economy, the investment for a growing country. Right. I mean, we're growing population-wise. Our GDP seems to be okay, but real GDP per capita has already contracted over the last three quarters. Uh, And the most recent forecast from TD points to that being persistent until the end of 2024. So in a nutshell, economic growth does not necessarily mean economic prosperity for us. And the reality is that compared to most of our peers, we simply can't afford as much with what we earn. Joining me now to explain all of this is Walid Hajazi. He's a professor of economic analysis and policy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School, and he's co-author of a book called Everybody's Business, How to Ensure Canadian Prosperity Through the 21st Century, a big challenge, clearly. Uh, Walid, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's great to be with you, Ben. 
Yeah, this this is one of those. I mean, I think the title of your book kind of says it all: how to ensure Canadian prosperity through the rest of this century. Because, and you you've been talking about this. Uh, we've gone from being one of the richest countries in terms of per capita GDP uh, several decades ago, and we're not there any longer. What's happening? Yeah, so Canada is sliding in our prosperity. On our 100th birthday in 1967, we were the third richest country in the world, and everybody was lining up to come to Canada. Here we are 50 years later on our 155th birthday, um, and now uh, we, we've dropped to 16th, which means... You know, a lot of countries are passing us in terms of income per capita. So the question becomes, why? Why are all of these other countries passing us? And it all comes down to this one concept called productivity. In other countries, government policy and business strategy is enabling people in those countries to be more productive and more innovative. And as a result of that, their average living standards how much they can buy with the goods that with the money that they earn is really growing much faster than we're experiencing in Canada. So Canada lags all of our major trading partners when it comes to productivity. And and you've mentioned this. I think uh, Canadians are innately aware of it, but they're getting mixed messages because if you look at some of the business news headlines, we see, oh, GDP growth is great in Canada. We know we're amongst the leaders in the G7. Things are going well. Unemployment is low. Salaries, it seems, wages are going up. I mean, we know about inflation and so on. But where is the disconnect there? Why is it that our standard of living is falling at the same time as we're seeing what looks like pretty rosy economic news? Yeah. So the rosy economic news is you have to think about the post-pandemic boom. So after the pandemic, the government injected a lot of money into the economy For every dollar of lost labor income, the government injected $2.5, which means savings rates in the economy went up. What does that mean to the average person? As we came out of the pandemic, there was a lot of pent-up demand. The economy in Canada, the U.S., and Europe all took off. But the other big thing about Canada and how we're different than other countries is our population is growing much, much faster. And it's not by Canadians having babies. It's through immigration. So many of your listeners might be surprised to hear that last year was the very first year in all of Canada's history that our population grew by more than a million people. So in one year, a million people, that's a lot of people. And so when you get more people in the country working more, obviously the economy is going to grow, but that's the wrong measure. The right measure is What is the average person producing? So what is income or production per person? And that has been falling and continues to slide. So even though the Canadian economy is growing robustly and it looks fantastic, when you look at the average income, which is a measure of productivity, an average income in Canada is falling relative to that in the United States, in the UK, in Germany, in France, in Poland, in Taiwan, and so on. These other countries are getting richer than we are relatively. And and you've mentioned, I think Canadians are noticing that without necessarily being able to put their finger on it. How do we see the, I mean, you were talking about the psychological impact of that just before we started uh, the interview about how a lot of Canadians, in a very short period of time, a lot of Canadians have gone from thinking things will continue to get better to uh, they're not going to get better for our kids. And that's a pretty alarming signal, I think. Yeah, I mean, this should wake everybody up. A survey done 
of Canadians in 2012, 30% of Canadians were resigned to the fact that their kids would be worse off than they were. That same survey done last year has that number at 70%, which means roughly three quarters of Canadians are resigned to the fact that the country that we were born into, what we're going to give to our kids, they're going to be worse off than we were. It's the first generation in our entire history. And you can just look around and feel it. You know, Canada is a great country. There's no other country I would rather live in. My family came here to give me and themselves a better life. It's a great country, but it's really, really expensive when you think about the cost of living and our salaries are not going as far as they used to. So this is what we mean by productivity or income per person. It's you take your salary and what can you buy with it? And you look in Canada, the affordability crisis is really eating away at the average family's ability to live as well as they did even five years ago. We are slipping relative to other countries. I saw these amazing stats recently. I'm trying to remember exactly what they were pointing out that sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, standard of living in terms of what the metric you've just used was, a, you know, a place like Ontario's, it was equivalent to somewhere like Alabama, that, that other states in, in like New York State, for instance, is well beyond us at this point. That's just a comparison that I think a lot of Canadians might be able to understand. Is that the kind of thing we're looking at now? Yeah, if you look if you look at the 50 US states and you mentioned Alabama and I saw those statistics as well and you look at where's Canada's inc where's Ontario? Ontario is the richest province in Canada. And where are we relative to the US? Well, Canada is about 35% lower than the US in income per person. But the US is highly variable. There's like some really rich states like New York um, in, in Florida and California, and then there's some poor states like Alabama. Well, what group are we with, Ontario? We're not with New York. We're not with California. We're not with Texas. We're not with Seattle. Who are we with? We're with Alabama. So we are not with the high-income earners in the U.S. We're with the low-income earners, which just tells you that something must change in Canada. And Ben, I got to say it, we have all of these obstacles that are preventing Canadians from being more productive, more innovative. All of these policies are making us fall further behind. We need what's called bold leadership. We need right. leaders that see these trends and try to change the direction of the ship. Well, Ed, you mentioned it earlier. We seem like an outlier here because so many countries seem to be getting this right. What are we getting wrong? And how do you change it? Because I think productivity can be a, a kind of nebulous concept to a lot of people, myself included. Um, what do we need to do to turn this ship around so that we don't keep slipping? Because I gather it's just going to get worse if we don't. It is going to get worse. And I have to respond to one thing that you say before I answer your question. Sure. We are, we are an outlier. If you right. look at the developed world, we're right near the bottom in terms of low productivity growth, which means other countries. If anybody tells you, yes, but this is happening everywhere else, they are wrong. This is happening in Canada, and we need to turn this around. And the question is, what are the policies? And this is what our book really dives into. What are the policies that are really limiting? And the way to think about it is the following. Think of the average Canadian who has this passion to pursue their dreams. It could be a business. It could be creating a new startup. It can be producing a technology and trying to commercialize it. The Canadian economy has so many barriers built into it 
many by governments and government policy, but also because governments protect many industries and the companies in those industries erect these barriers because they're oligopolies. The telecom industry is a great example of three companies that essentially control the Canadian market. And everybody should wonder, why do Canadians pay amongst the highest rates for telecom and internet services in the world? Let me just say it as a professor, it's completely unnecessary. It's government protectionism. Why do we have this protectionism? And Ben, there's a very famous quote. Companies will only be as productive as they need to be. So when I have telecom companies, or when I have airlines, or when I have financial services and banks, and they're protected from competition, they don't need to be innovative because their profits are already very, very high. They have a high return on assets. They're incredibly profitable. They're very low risk. So all of these impediments are put in place that prevent people like you and me and the average listener from doing things that are really innovative. Now, I have a story I think that can illuminate this entire conversation. I have a former student who went from grade eight to university. He never went to high school. Oh, wow. He started a company in a basement in Oakville, Ontario. It's in the healthcare space. He tried to commercialize it in Canada and he couldn't. So he's now in the United States. His company is publicly listed on the U.S. stock market. His technology is deployed across the United States and around the world. And Ben, I have to ask you, what country is this technology not deployed? I, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess and, it's Canada, of course. And, 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 yeah. and, and we talk about Canada as being a country of immigrants. But one of the things that we don't talk about is in the first year, many people that come to Canada actually end up leaving. And the people that leave tend to go to the United States because in the United States, they're able to, to um, pursue strategies that are innovative and productive. Like my former student, he's now has hundreds of employees in the United States. The question is, why isn't he have hundreds of employees in Canada earning these very high salaries? So the last thing I'll say, and I'll turn it back over to you, Ben, mm -hmm. is the World Economic Forum does a survey of CEOs and they ask the question, what is the biggest obstacle to doing business in Canada? And the top two, number one, is dealing with an inefficient government bureaucracy. And number two are obstacles for companies to be innovative. Right. I mean, it feels like a closed, a closed shop, right? In some ways, Canada, it's hard to get in. Once you're in, you're in. It's hard to compete because so much is is controlled by a small number of companies, as you pointed out, that don't really need to compete. Their, their profits are kind of baked into the system. And, um, and it also means that they don't have to pay their workers as much. I mean, ultimately, if they're not competing, then everyone sort of gets tapped. So the whole thing, it's like a slow ship, right? A slow ship that's slowly rusting away as it floats along. You know, everybody remembers the conversation of HQ2 when Amazon, I know Amazon isn't always the most popular company, but when Amazon wanted to open its HQ2 in Toronto, they were going to have 60,000 high paying jobs. Ask yourself the question, you know, some people are just against Amazon and that's fine. But a lot of the big companies were against it because they said, 
if Amazon comes and hires 60,000 tech workers, we're going to have to compete. And so they worked against Amazon coming to Canada, which is really disingenuous. You know, the idea that we don't want these big American or global companies to come here because it's going to force us to pay our workers more. It's going to make our employees more productive and more innovative. But this is where we need bold government leadership to really move the needle on this. Well, uh, Walid Hajazi, thank you so much for your insight on this fascinating stuff. Uh, I appreciate it. Anytime, Ben, and uh, thanks for the interest. Uh, let's move to a, to an interesting – this is an interesting story because there were some cool new stats out this week or some interesting new stats at least from Post Media. You may remember, if you're in BC, you'll know this story inside out. If you're not, last week the province moved in to end this longstanding fight with uh, Surrey over the future of policing in that massive Vancouver suburb. If you live outside of Surrey, BC, you may think, well, what, what does that have to do with me? But one of the main reasons given by the province for ordering Surrey to continue a transition from an RCMP force, which they've contracted out for ages, to a municipal police force will probably be familiar to anyone who is served by the Mounties. Essentially, that the reverting to the RCMP would have created public safety issues in the rest of the province by siphoning off RCMP officers from other detachments to work in Surrey. In other words, there aren't enough Mounties out there to allow Surrey to go back to the RCMP in a nutshell. Here's how BC's Public Safety Minister, Mark McFarnworth, uh, laid it out last week. Back in April, I presented two paths for the future of policing in Surrey. At that time, it was possible for the city to choose either path to go back to the RCMP or to continue forward with the Surrey Police, provided they met mandatory conditions to keep people safe. One path was safer than the other, but both were possible. Now, today, we're in a different place. The city chose the path they wanted to take, and they presented their plan for how they proposed to do it. Right. Uh, I mean, and they did. They wanted to go to the current uh, city council. They wanted to go back to the RCMP. They wanted to stop this transition to a municipal police force. Uh, but soon after that announcement was made, Post Media put out these numbers, as I was mentioning, finding that the RCMP is falling well short of staffing levels in many places across this country, multiple jurisdictions, uh, where it has either provincial policing con- or where it has provincial policing contracts, uh, with as many as one in six positions unfilled, leaving, of course, communities with fewer officers and detachments short-staffed. That essentially is what BC's public safety minister was referring to. Now, of course, the RCMP, you'll know this, are contracted to provide services of a provincial police force in every province and territory in the country outside of Ontario and Quebec. They also have obviously have contracts to provide policing in towns and cities and Aboriginal communities that do not have their own force. Um, and it's suffering some real officer vacancy rates in all eight provinces and, and three territories, uh, including in BC, where it's 7% down. That's lower than many others, such as Alberta, where it's 15%, but still very high. To help us talk, sort this out is Kirk Griffiths. He's a professor and coordinator of the Police Studies Program at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University's Surrey campus, no less. Uh, Kurt, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Surprised at all by these vacancy numbers? I think anecdotally we thought it was probably true, but they seem, they seem high and, and equally spread out across the country. I'm not surprised. Um, you know, I'm aware of the policing landscape in Canada, of course, when the RCMP plays a major role in that, as you mentioned. Actually, these shortages aren't new. I think they're just coming to light. I think it's been some time that the RCMP has been understaffed in many of their detachments. So I think that this coming to light with the Surrey situation kind of brought that uh, to the forefront. 
Yeah, because, I mean, if you read between the lines uh, about what Mike Farnworth was saying, the B.C. Public Safety Minister, he was basically saying, if you take peace, RCMP officers back to Surrey, if you lure them back, we're going we're gonna to have too few in the rest of the province, and we can't have that. I mean, this is a public safety issue. Yeah, I think that was, uh, you know, that's a good rationale. That's a good reason. I think there was a good chance that that, that may have happened. And his responsibility, of course, as minister is to ensure you notice that he kept using the term adequate and effective policing. Right. Uh, and the decision that he made, as you mentioned, uh, is that the, the Surrey RCMP could not provide adequate and effective policing, primarily because of the lack of staffing. It's not a comment on the men and women of the RCMP. It's a comment no. on the ability of the organization. I think we have to make that distinction, you know, really important. Uh, the organization itself, it's stretched too thin. Uh, you know, the, the RCMP is doing the work of at least 26 U.S. law enforcement agencies. You know, they're, yeah, they're all the way yeah. from policing, uh, you know, the Arctic to overseas uh, policing, you know, in terms of liaisons and the consulates and international peacekeeping. And, you know, it's they're just stretched too thin, too thin. And my point is they have been for some time. I think the Surrey situation just brought it to light. Yeah, some of those, um, I mean, they're contracted out. I mean, needless to say, when you have that kind of um, short shortfall, and we're seeing it already, it becomes kind of a vicious circle because those that contract that are that they're contracted to serve start to look for options, right? They start to look for other possible solutions to what policing might look like in their province or in their community. Right. And I think you're seeing the landscape of uh, policing, not only in British Columbia, potentially changing very significantly in the coming years. Uh, The provincial contract is up, I think, in 2032. Uh, And the federal government, interestingly enough, piped up a couple of days before the minister made his announcement that they were considering reconstituting the RCMP purely as a federal police service in Canada and getting them out of contract policing. So, I would say that those two announcements are kind of coincidental, kind of unusual for the federal government to to make that kind of announcement in public. So I think that there's things that may be going on at the national level in terms of how policing is uh, structured in in this country. If the Mounties are pulled out of provincial policing in the provinces uh, and if if in British Columbia, I think we need to think back to the all party committee report from a year ago spring. Uh, which suggested the RCMP be removed from contract policing, that there be regionalization of police services, perhaps the South Island, the greater Vancouver area, and in the Okanagan, uh, and that they bring back the, the B.C. Provincial Police, which, of course, policed in British Columbia to the early 1950s. Right. Alberta looking at the same, of course. Um, Nova Scotia, yes. perhaps, as well. All of them. Of course, it, it, it is a complicated process to switch. I mean, Surrey itself is going to have some growing pains trying to move. It's a huge municipality uh, trying to move mm-hmm. to its own municipal police force. This isn't done with the flick of a switch. But uh, the impact, though, the impact on the officers, I often think about when you're short-staffed the way the RCMP clearly are in just about everywhere, the impact on employees alone must have must be a bit of a vicious circle as well. It, it, it does, and I think that's kind of one of the hidden uh, consequences of the understaffing is the burden on the men and women, for example, in the RCMP or any police service that's short-staffed because the increased demands made on police services these days. You know, in, in many detachments, over 50% of the calls for service are mental health calls. They have nothing to do with policing, but unfortunately in British Columbia and across the uh, country, the provincial governments haven't stepped up 
and, and resourced uh, mental health teams sufficiently. So the police end up bearing that burden as well. So I think that there a lot of things have been what we call downloaded onto the police that are really the responsibility of the provincial government. So that wears even more on the men and women, for example, in our CMP detachment uh, that's understaffed. Right. And and like so much else out there over the past couple of decades, I, I suspect that policing, any policing, RCMP included for a lot of Canadians, has become infinitely more complex as well. Yeah, yes, it has. I mentioned that what we call the downloading, things that are really the responsibility of the provincial government, the police end up dealing with. And I think that you know, there has to be the provincial governments need to come to the table uh, and really take some of this burden off the police. And again, that puts so much pressure on de- departments and uh, RCMP detachments. And if you're short staff and if you're having tra- challenges recruiting, uh, for example, or officers are off on stress leave and many departments and detachments, up to 20 percent of the members are off on stress leave or not what we would call deployable. And there's a percentage of officers who are on the front lines who probably shouldn't be in terms of, you know, you know, challenges of mental health issues and stress and so forth. Right. Uh, the RCMP uh, were, were quoted in the same National Post article that talked about these uh, the shortfalls in staffing, and they refer to it as a bit of a, a bit of a blip. You know, they said you know there's been retirements and so on, and you, you say no, this has been sort of an endemic problem uh, with the Mounties just trying yeah. to spread too much too thin. Yeah, it is, and I think on top of it. I think there's been a kind of confluence of, of, of events. As, you know, the mass casualty report out of Nova Scotia. Uh, right. There have been several high-profile incidents that have you know, challenged the RCMP organization. Uh, the toxic uh, work culture that's well-documented in terms of, you know, uh, current and former women members uh, suing the federal government, the millions of dollars that have been paid out for harassment suits. I think that's that is uh, one of the factors that suggests it's not a blip. Uh, that in fact the organization has trouble recruiting because of kind of the widespread knowledge about the the environment. I think another reason is the the RCMP model, which is kind of a military model of moving officers around all over the country. I think in the old days, officers, you know, per, perhaps were much more compliant. You know. Until uh, not too many years ago, an RCMP officer couldn't get married without the permission of their commanding officer. Yeah, well. You know, so, you know, I think that the new generation of officers uh, are, you know, want work-life balance. They're they're not, you know, they don't want a letter received tomorrow that says, if they're policing in Langley, British Columbia, that they're moving to Thompson, Manitoba. Sell your house. Uh, your 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 spouse has to quit their job. Your kids have to move schools and see you in Thompson, Manitoba in three months. I think yeah. that perhaps in the old days, it was more a tendency to comply and officers did. These days, I think because of work-life balance and because of the changing nature of, you know, the, the perceptions of the job, which is I want a work-life balance, there, there may be a hesitancy to sign up for that kind of constant transfer and movement. Kirk Griffiths is with the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. We're talking about the RCMP and its uh, staffing issues. It continues to have short staff right across the country. Uh, Kurt, you mentioned this already. There is this idea that's been, it's not new, I don't imagine, but it seems to have been talked about, at least by the now former uh, public safety minister federally, Marco Mendicino, uh, and the prime minister a little bit, uh, that uh, a federal, sort of a northern FBI might make sense to reduce what the RCMP does to focus them. Is that a good idea? 
I think so. If we look historically, that's where they started. They began as a federal police service. It just happened, so happened as fate would have it over the years. uh, They expanded into becoming provincial police services, and then they became involved in contract policing at the municipal level. All of the provinces originally had their own provincial police service. Alberta did, Manitoba did, Saskatchewan did, uh, and they fell by the wayside for various reasons. So I think it's a great idea. I think if they can focus and put their resources in one particular place, they could be really good at one thing rather than trying to be, uh, you know, doing everything uh, and not oftentimes, you know, coming up short. Again, not a reflection on the men and women, but a resource issue for sure. Right. Uh, I, I suspect there are there would be structural opposition to this happening because it would mean a lot of change within a very big and uh, quite powerful organization. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that nobody said the transition from, in Surrey would be easy, and it certainly wasn't. I mean, you had a municipal council that initially voted seven to nothing to do the transition, and the more recent, the last vote uh, under the new mayor and council was 6-4. Uh, and there was a very public uh, uh, dispute and conflict over it, which wasn't healthy for anybody. It's interesting, the mass casualty report on Nova Scotia, which I think is playing a role here. Oftentimes, commissions of inquiry are kind of local or regional, but the commissioners and the mass casualty commission extended their, their scope and said that depots should be closed in Regina. And it was interesting to see the response to that suggestion, which is, a unanimous opposition to that from politicians, for example, in the city of Regina, saying for historical and cultural reasons, it was important to keep it open. Not necessarily for policing reasons, but tradition. So I think that absolutely, given the RCMP's, you know, embeddedness in Canadian culture, um, there, you know, it is, it's a, it's a symbol of Canada. The, the, the police uh, service is an icon. And so I think it, that adds another layer of, of challenge. But things are changing. I think the landscape is changing. And uh, I think that certainly will be uh, interesting times ahead. It's interesting that the government of Alberta is giving municipalities in that province $30,000 to explore moving from Mountie to municipal, independent municipal. That's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, offer up to the communities. And as well, there are plans on the shelf for a, uh, you know, an Alberta Provincial Police Service. Right. I mean, ultimately, what we want is a healthy RCMP and the best policing possible at an affordable cost, right? I mean, that's what it all boils down to, I think. It just seems, we, you know, yeah. that's become, you know, sort of passing the buck on the money, stretching the RCMP too thin. I mean, there's mm-hmm. been a bunch of things that have just, uh, by inertia, not worked out. Yeah, and I say, come back to those terms, adequate and effective policing. You say, well, that's, you know, that's pretty general terms. I think most people have an idea of what that means. It means, you know, a fully staffed and fully resourced uh, police service that meets the needs and demands of the community. And I think that uh, we saw in Surrey that, you know, Surrey's a very dynamic, rapidly growing, very diverse community. Uh, and so it's important to have a police service that can get ahead of the, the, the growth curve and, and serve the citizens of, of, the, of the city. Including uh, where you are. I don't know if you're there tonight, but where the school is. Kurt Griffiths, as always, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Enjoy the conversation. Take care. Marvin met Pedu. Peter John Wilkins. Robert Arbaugh Stewart. 
That was the sound of a really touching ceremony that took place in South Korea today um, to mark 70 years since the armistice that ended the hostilities in the Korean War back on July 27, 1953. What they did is they brought out veterans from each of the countries that fought alongside the Koreans against the North um, onto a stage and announced their names. Each and then it was just this parade of, of, of veterans, all of them, all of them in their late 80s and 90s at this point. Uh, a few of them waved. You know, there were some obviously in wheelchairs. There were some who were walking uh, on their own and celebrated them, clapped. You know, and it was, um, you know, there were 10 Canadians there, as you were, those were a few of their names being mentioned. And um, yeah, each was on hand. And there were others there from the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, many others, uh, the Philippines, the Netherlands, just a few here and there. But still, it was a really a way for uh, South Korea to thank those who came over, sacrificed uh, their lives and also fought on their behalf. Um back in 19, well, during those three years from 1950 to 1953. Of course, um, the three-year-long Korean War has long been known as the Forgotten War um, because once it was done and Canadian troops stayed behind for quite a few years afterwards into the late 50s, about 7,000 as peacekeepers, um, those who fought there, 26,000 Canadians fought there, 516 died. It is still the third deadliest overseas conflict in Canada's military history after the two world wars, that when they returned home, they weren't really considered. What they had done was not considered the equivalent of what had been done uh, just a decade earlier uh, in the Second World War, or for that matter, decades earlier in the First World War. And so for years and years and years, veterans of the Korean War have had to fight again for recognition of their sacrifice, for recognition that the lives lost in that conflict were like lives lost in every other conflict. I think as a country, we certainly awoke to that during the Afghanistan conflict um, about what sacrifice means, what war is, uh, and that doesn't matter where you fight it, that if you're sent there to do it, it carries a very similar impact, a very similar weight on those who, ha who are called on to go sacrifice um, in faraway lands, right? Um, I was interested, I mean, I've, I've spent time in both North Korea in Pyongyang uh, years ago and in South Korea, which is a remarkably successful place these days, needless to say, one of the biggest and fastest growing economies in the world. Uh, and the contrast between the two is jarring. It wasn't always that way for a while there back decades and decades ago. The North was actually more prosperous than the South as the South rebuilt. But these days, I mean, the fruits or at least the sacrifices made all those years ago for those who return, and it was spoken about by the vets, whether they be American, British, or Canadian, who are back there. I was watching some interviews they've been doing that South Korea's incredible success is really um, heartening to them because they remember a time when they fought there and just how different it was, of course, uh, the you know civilians on both sides of what is now North Korea and the border suffered horrifically during that war. And so they remember just how devastated the country was and how it has risen from the ashes in all those decades in between. But I wanted to talk more about the Forgotten War because I really don't think it should be forgotten. So to help me do that is Tim Cook. He's Chief Historian and Director of Research at the Canadian War Museum. Tim, thanks. Great to be with you again. 
It's amazing to think 70 years and always an important time to reflect on these ones. I, you know, I covered the 70th anniversary of D-Day and so on. And it really reminds you how much time has passed. And and also that those who were there to witness this, uh, many are no longer with us. Yeah, these anniversaries, I guess they help us focus the mind a bit, don't they? Uh, think of that 70 years ago, the armistice that ended the Korean War. It's a war, I think, that a lot of Canadians don't know about. We don't generally teach it in our our schools. You mentioned D-Day there. The two world wars are, are far more prominent in our social memory in our, it, with monuments and memorials. Think of Vimy and D-Day and, and other aspects about the Atlantic and we we almost seem to lose uh, lose our energy uh, after the Second World War to talk about the Korean War and the Cold War. But of course, this was the first hot war of the Cold War. Right. And Canada, you know, at the time, uh, the newly created UN obviously played a big part in this. Canada played a big role, uh, Lester Pearson uh, and so forth. I mean, we uh, didn't hesitate, did we, to get involved in this one under Prime Minister Louis Saint-Laurent? Yeah, yeah. It's worth just kind of remembering where we are in our history. We, we've come out of the Second World War. It's August of 1945. We're demobilizing this massive force, 1.1 million Canadians who serve in the Second War from a country of 11 million. Just a staggering amount. Our country is forever changed. And yet it's the rise of the Soviet Union and aggressive communism and uh, and that's the world where Canadians were in the in the late forties. Of course, we we become a founding member of NATO, of which we still are today. And then there is this war, this war in an unexpected place, a Korea which had been divided, like Germany, after the Second World War, with a communist North and a we can't say a democratic South, but a South that was under the protection, at least of the United States. And there is this invasion of June of 1950. And it looks like the war is going to be over before it really begins. The, the North Koreans have the jump on the South Koreans and the Americans. It, it goes very badly for the first couple of months. And that's when Canada is asked to step up. And we do because it's a United Nations operation led by the Americans. Uh, initially, we, we send three destroyers there from the Royal Canadian Navy, but it's not enough. Uh, even though those destroyers and another eight or so that will follow over the next three years really play a key role in naval warfare, in uh, bombarding North Korea. But it's really our ground forces that will play a, a key role. And we have to raise, in effect, a new army. Right. For this war there and about 26, 27,000 Canadians will serve there and a couple thousand more after the war. Uh, and our main forces uh, begin to arrive and fight after that initial disaster where the North Koreans have pushed back the South Koreans. Then they have regrouped and the Americans and they do an amphibious landing and then the war stabilizes. That's when Canada comes in. And yet it's very dangerous. It's tr it's like trench warfare of the Great War, where the Canadians, our first unit, the second battalion of the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry are there. And they fight in a major battle in April of 1951, the right. Battle of Capiong. Of Capiong, of course, yeah. Which is a significant one because at the time, for, for listeners to remember, the 30th parallel is sort of continues to this day to be the dividing line. And there was a lot of pushback. And for, for a while, it, it very much stabilized later in the conflict. But there was a lot of pushback and forth across that across that area in Canada. Capiong was not that far from there. Is that right? And, and that's where Canada was sort of, or am I thinking of the, the other hill? <laughs> but, you but got yes, it. You got yeah. it. 
Yeah, yeah. you know, um, just think of Seoul. Uh, mm-hmm. It was overrun four times, and it's very close to the, the 38th as well. So, uh, yeah, there's, it's these seesaw battles. And um, while we think of the Canadian soldiers and airmen and, and a few sailors who, who died during the war, we should also remember just a, a hideous cost to a North Korean and South Korean civilians. Yes. About three million killed during uh, the war, we think, although really nobody knows. But for the Canadians, and 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 that is generally what we talk about. That major battle at Cap Yong was to defend against another one of those Chinese offensives. Because we'll remember, of course, as the North Koreans are being pushed back in October of 1950 after these seesaw battles, China enters the war. Communist China standing by the North Koreans and, in fact, taking over the war from North Korea. And it is the Chinese soldiers who come swooping down on the Canadians at Kapyong and the Canadians who are fighting there in an exposed position on a hill uh, facing overwhelming odds, uh, really fight a spectacular uh, battle, often hand-to-hand combat and, and absolute brutality. And that's really, I think, the Canadians make their name there. And we think at other times in our history, Ben, I think we've talked about this, the Battle of Second Deep in April 1915, right. where the Canadians stand against gas in the First World War. Think of the Second World War for D-Day. Canada has these key battles that we mark, and Cap Yong is the one that's generally known uh, for the Korean War. Yeah, there was a U.S. presidential unit citation for Canada, too, which is a rarity for that particular battle, I believe. You're exactly right. And the PPCLI still wear it to this day and are very proud of that. Um, There were other battles, of course, and um, I've sometimes wondered why we don't know so much about about the Korean War, they're often fought at places like Hill 355. Right. And they didn't have a name like Vimy or Verrier Ridge or the Scheldt Campaign. Uh, but there are these continuous battles of combat patrols, trench raids, because by about late 1951, the front stagnates. It's like the Western Front in the First World War, and it really becomes trench warfare, but in these hills and mountain regions where artillery and mortars are, are laying in punishing fire, where snipers and raiders go out at night. Uh, Not dissimilar to what I think we may be seeing uh, in the Ukraine war that's happening now. There's not a lot of movement. It's difficult to mount an offensive. And that will characterize the fighting really in the second half of the war, throughout 1952 and the the half of the war in 1953. Right up until now, uh, 70 years ago. Tim, when we look at at what happened, I mean, Canada remained behind. Thousands of peacekeepers stayed behind uh, after the war to try to maintain what what is a conflict that, it, that you know it's they're still technically at war to this day right they are it's a, it's one of the most dangerous places in the world ben and it's just um we know that the the demilitarized zone between north korea and south korea is just uh bristling with mines and weapons and soldiers and we know the aggression from north korea which has been episodic but you know relentless over those 70 years and why is that well there was an armistice uh, this day 70 years ago as you've said uh, to technically end the fighting but not end the war that armistice it was clear for at least a year that this war could not be won Uh, One of the sticking points was what to do with prisoners. Uh, There were uh, tens of thousands of North Korean prisoners in the South, uh, many who did not want to go back to North Korea, but North Korea and China wanted their prisoners back. There were a number, uh, thousands of allied uh, prisoners as well, including I think it's about 35 or 40 Canadians who were prisoners. And that that dragged out the negotiations. But when there was that armistice, uh, the war ended. Uh, Most Canadians came home except for the 
350 or so who remain buried there and the the peacekeepers who tried to to keep the peace afterwards. Um, but the way wars end, uh, I think, has an impact on how we remember them. I right. think of the Second World War with uh, the definitive end in May of 45 with against the V-Day. Nazi, yeah, yeah, of yeah, course. And, yeah. and against Japan. Uh, that shaped how we think about that war, as well as the total nature of that war, total societies involved. That wasn't the case from 1950 to 53. It was a war that was happening far away from Canadians. We were going through a period of prosperity. The baby boom was happening. There were jobs. We were able to keep that commitment in a way that didn't really affect Canadians. And we might draw a parallel here to the Afghanistan war. That That isn't to say that when those deaths or woundings, they weren't traumatic to the families, but it it didn't require a total commitment from our society. And I think that's one of the reasons why it became the forgotten war in, in Canada, as, as we've talked about. The two world wars are far more prominent. And, and I think the emergence of the idea of the peacekeeper from uh, Pearson in 56 and the Suez crisis and, and our great pride in peacekeeping with our Canadian forces. Now, that's changed, I think, the, the death of traditional peacekeeping in the 1990s in places like Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. And then the war in Afghanistan, I think we realize that you can't put soldiers in places where there is no peace. And yet that that contributed to squeezing out, I think, the Korean War and why it is called the Forgotten War. Yeah, because it was not until 1991, I believe, where soldiers were finally veterans of that war, were finally decorated for their services. Is that right? Yeah, they received a a special volunteer medal, which they had been uh, veterans have been asking for for years. But even before that, um, Korean War veterans, they felt neglected. They felt uh, unwanted when they came back. Uh, Often uh, Royal Canadian Legion, you know, largely made up of veterans of the two world wars, didn't always treat their conflict in the same way or with much kindness or generosity. There was the formation of uh, a separate uh, Korean War Veterans Association in 1974, if memory serves, which was really about trying to uh, build memorials to the fallen uh, because they had argued, the veterans of that war, that there should be a separate memorial in Ottawa, and there simply was no interest uh, by the state. Now, to be fair, there wasn't for the Second War either. We we built our national memorial in downtown Ottawa in 1939, and it wasn't until 1982, you'll remember, where we added the, the names of the Korean War and the Second World War. Yeah. So that contributed to the forgetting of this war, and it took the veterans of this war to build their own national memorial. It's in Brampton. It was erected and unveiled in 1997, and they paid for it. So that gives you a sense maybe of of some of this forgetting and silencing of these veterans. And yet not in Korea. I mean, if I remember correctly, being in South Korea, not in Korea, there has always been a lot of appreciation for all those who in South Korea, for all those who fought to protect what has become South Korea, uh, a democratic and very rich South Korea, by the way, at this point in time, but a lot of appreciation for the sacrifice made by all, including Canadians. Yeah, I I think you've nailed it there. That's a powerful legacy that uh, I've had the pleasure of speaking to Korean War veterans for probably 25 years now. I'm working on an edited book, hopefully to to bring back some of the knowledge of uh, the Korean War. But one of the things I have found in my many conversations with Korean War veterans is 
as they said, we were largely forgotten by our own government by in our own country, but not by South Koreans. And, and from about the mid-1970s, there have been official tours back there, and the South Koreans have welcomed the veterans back. And in fact, there's a contingent there today in South Korea being feted and celebrated as the warriors who stood for the safety of their country. Now these aged uh, soldiers who have lost so many of their comrades. And one of the things I, I know about powerful legacy that veterans talk about is the success and prosperity of South Korea, which has just become, as you've mentioned, they're just a powerhouse nation, and especially in contrast to North Korea, which is guarded and goes through uh, episodic periods of starvation and is a a, a rogue state. That is something that uh, veterans uh, in this country, the United States, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and other countries, they talk about that as one of their great legacies. Yeah, perhaps the greatest the greatest testament to their sacrifice is that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's something to maybe reflect on now as uh, these veterans who are all 90 uh, years of age or older, we're, we're getting to a point where we will lose them all. We will lose our last eyewitnesses to history. For many years, these veterans were going into schools to talk to young people. They successfully were able to have memorials built and certainly the name of the Korean War added to the National Memorial. I think, as you alluded to, we have a better sense of the Korean War, partially, I suspect, because of North and South Korea and the danger there that we simply cannot avoid understanding the origins of that. And yet, uh, I suspect uh, one of our roles, perhaps a debt that falls to us, is to continue to remember, to tell these stories and to understand this complex history. Well, Tim, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that's a big help. I'm much appreciated. Thank you so much. Well, this is one of those really uh, things that I get to do sometimes, which I find really interesting, which is read a cool book about something I don't know much about uh, and then interview the author. And it's always fun because I find out about things that that I don't know much about. I don't. I really don't know much about bluefin tuna. I mean, I know what they look like. I've eaten it, as many probably have at some point in their lives. Uh, but I really didn't know much about them other than they swim really fast, they're massive, and they're very expensive. And then a few weeks ago, as I was getting set to do this, something really remarkable happened out here where I am, not actually far that far from where I'm sitting, about 50 kilometers away in the U.S. waters uh, around what are called the San Juan Islands, Orcas Island, to be specific in this case, which are just south of the Gulf Islands that, we, that are on the Canadian side, like Salt Spring and Pender Island and so on. So right between Vancouver Island and Washington State, really, right? So for the very first time in scientifically documented history, uh, Researchers there found a five and a half foot long, 200 pound bluefin tuna. Again, the first time that that's ever happened in these waters as far as being scientifically documented uh, in the waters that make up the Sailor Sea. Uh, here's what Joe Gatos, science director at the Sea Doc Society, he lives in Orcas Island, told Seattle's, Seattle's Kiro TV. What is this doing here? You know, this is crazy to see this thing. And um, and then I was like, I need to I need to double check the ID on this thing. I think it, it's it swam into the Sailor Sea, right? Something brought it in. Food, warm water, we really don't know. And then and then something something killed it as well. And it didn't, you know, no, no external injuries. So it, it's just really a mystery. A mystery indeed. Now, apparently bluefin tuna usually roam the more temperate waters uh, closer off the Pacific Ocean and the U.S. catch 
I didn't know this before, is about 185 kilometers off the California coast. So how it ended up all the way here, you know, that's a, a ways from the open water, is a real mystery. It remains a mystery. Um, but exploring the history, mystery, and majesty of the bluefin tuna is where my next guest comes in. Karen Pynchon's first book is called Kings of Their Own Ocean, Tuna, Obsession, and the Future of Our Seas. One of the things that it says included right near the beginning that I didn't know that I thought was fascinating is the word tuna comes from the Spanish word atun, which is from the Arabic, uh, which I'm not gonna, uh, atun, from the Latin tunis, which is from the ancient Greek tune, which means I rush or dart along because the fish itself, if you've seen a tuna move, uh, a bluefin, they really dart. I mean, they move fast. So again, uh, in this book, uh, Karen Pinchin travels through centuries, but it also focuses on and what makes it a really interesting read is it focuses on one central tuna fisherman uh, in the in the in the um, in New England, essentially in Rhode Island, who made it his mission to tag and protect the bluefin, and a single bluefin called Amelia after Amelia Earhart because of its incredible cross Atlantic trips, caught after it was first tagged near Rhode Island, thousands of kilometers away, thousands of kilometers away. Uh, Karen Pynchon is an investigative food systems journalist, a teacher, and again, her first book is called Kings of Their Own Ocean, and she joins me now. Karen, thank you. Hi, Ben. The timing is, is is impeccable because I think there's a lot of interest in our seas generally. We've been seeing a lot of news about warming oceans and so on, especially this summer, but, but take me back a bit and, and tell me about how you sort of focused in, zoomed in on, on the tuna, the bluefin tuna, as a way to tell this greater story? Yeah, bluefin is kind of a beautiful vehicle for telling an epic global story because bluefin is an epic global fish. But for my purposes, I, I became really obsessed with a man who was himself obsessed with catching tuna. I think that was my way into the story is that I, I don't know if I would describe myself as like a fish person, but the obsession people have for this fish and kind of the role it played in our collective imagination, those two elements together kind of made the story undeniable for me. Right. As always, the best stories are about motivation, right? I, I guess, or why people do the things they do. And when you say catching fish, it should be, I should point out to listeners that Al Anderson caught a lot of fish, but he didn't haul away a lot of fish. He tagged them, right? I mean, he was one of those, he sort of had a very different way of approaching it and made it financially successful as well. Yeah. So his kind of personal tagline was tag them for science. And you can imagine in the 80s when a single bluefin tuna could make thousands and thousands of dollars at the docks that a lot of other fishermen thought he was a total idiot. You know, why would you be putting money back in the water? But even like he had these delicate cotton gloves. He had all these kind of elaborate systems for catching fish and tagging them with little plastic spaghetti tags and then setting them free. And it was kind of, he's like an early citizen scientist in a in a culture that didn't really practice that kind of work. Right. And it allowed us to, I suppose we could go back even further here and, and understand that for a very, very long time, we knew what a bluefin tuna was, but we had very little concept of just how they lived and how far they roamed. Yeah, I, I like to think of it almost that they're satellites. The tagging, you can tag it and then you put it back in the ocean and it's just kind of gone, right? And that's why the the fish that I write about, Amelia, 
named yes. after Amelia Earhart, the the famous aviator. This is why her being tagged repeated times is so groundbreaking because otherwise it just kind of, as Carl Safina, the environmentalist said, it's like we can pull back the covers on the ocean and actually see what's happening underneath. Amelia is kind of part of this really groundbreaking cohort of fish that are allowing us to, you know, you see the surface of the ocean and all you see are waves. But it's obvious to us increasingly now that it's so much more than that. And and you go back into the history, and I don't I don't want to go back too far. I don't want to give away too much of the book either. But you go back into the history of the of you sort of we, we we don't fully understand exactly when the bluefin tuna arose, but or or arrived. But we did we do know that it started to move in great distances quite early on, and and that it has this incredible way of, I mean, just the way it circulates in our waters. I mean, it, parts of your book were kind of jaw-dropping, to be honest, because I didn't really know and understand just how far afield a bluefin could move and, and how they and how they reproduce. And it was it was just, it was, they're quite spectacular creatures. Oh, they're incredible. And this was part of it, is that uh, you would encounter these facts and you're like, is this real? I know in 1962, they're in the very earliest days of fish tagging, one tuna that was caught near the Bahamas was later caught off the coast of Norway about 50 days later. And so that would be the equivalent of us running five consecutive marathons a day for more than a month. And it it can keep up these speeds partially because it has this incredible it's called a viti mirabile system Mm. it's essentially like a heat exchanger so where other types of fish may lose heat through their gills it essentially takes that heat and channels it back into its eyes into its muscles into its brain and so it can actually it's what we call warm bodied fish which is quite quite rare and comes from yeah this ancient history of evolving essentially in the Mediterranean before it was the Mediterranean like the continents were still moving around when bluefin tuna evolved as a result that it kind of it drew it across the ocean that's how I like to think of it it was like that as the oceans widened and the continents moved apart the bluefin just had this almost yeah like a miraculous system that allowed it to match those distances and that's why it can get so big it's why it lives so long relative to other tuna it's so perfectly adapted to its environment yeah you you had a great comparison to it that i'm trying to remember verbatim right now but something like a it looks like a missile or a nuclear missile on a yeah, fish body. Well, yeah. I, it's like a, i like saying it's like a, a the weight of a grand piano except imagine that shaped like a nuclear weapon I mean, they are absolutely massive. And and you go back in time as well um, to not that long ago, not that long ago at all, actually, mm-hmm. when it was sort of prized as a as a game fish, as a sport fish, but it wasn't really prized at all as a, as a food fish, which may surprise some people. I mean, or maybe not. I mean, there are lots of other things that we consider luxury foods now that certainly weren't luxury foods a century ago. But this one may come as a bit of a surprise. This was not a prized food fish for a very long time. No, I traveling along the eastern seaboard in both Canada and the states that you can still meet fishermen, old timers in some cases not that old, who remember this being a total trash fish that they would catch it, they would take pictures with it and then they would put it on their boat and drive it past the breakwater and just dump it back into the ocean. There were cases where uh, a fisherman said, oh, well, this beautiful, huge fish, it must be worth money. And they would pay to have it trucked to, say, New York City, to the big Fulton fish market. And if nobody wanted to buy it, the fisherman was on the hook for the gas money that it took to truck that fish down there. So it 
it's really remarkable. And that there's a, a Canadian story in kind of changing that global narrative that I kind of fell in love with. So sometime in the sort of 60s, the idea that bluefin is becoming a coveted fish to eat changes the equation a lot for the for the species, right? I mean, all of a sudden, it's in demand and anything in demand in the sea, people find ways to catch it. And, and you, you mentioned there's a Canadian component to this as well, which is quite an incredible story, but actually flying bluefin from New York to Tokyo that's been caught in PEI. I mean, there's a bunch of great stories in here. Yeah, I like to think of it as this is my favorite kind of nonfiction where it's it reads almost like a romp. Like, you know, yeah. you don't want it to be too dragged down. But yeah, so there's there's two kind of major Canadian angles. The first is actually before the rise of globalization, and that involved Wedgeport, Nova Scotia. You would have these glamorous game fish fishermen and women from all over the world came to remote Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. They were catching these the first, very first rod and reel caught giant bluefin in rural Nova Scotia. And so that's kind of one component of it is that as a prize fish, right? right? And and so Wedgeport played a big role in that. They're gargantuan, right? I mean, they're almost alien looking. Yeah. And, and row after row after row of them. And it's easy to look back now and say, you know, how dare they catch that many and, and just kill them all. But you have to understand, like reporting this book, doing a lot of historical research is this is how humanity for a long time, a large portion of us in the West viewed it as the ocean is endless bounty, right? This idea, right. you know, cod so plentiful, you could walk upon their backs. It, it would have been inconceivable to a lot of people 100 years ago that that these species had an end point, that there could be a collapse. Then the, the next part of the story, in terms of the Canadian links, is in Prince Edward Island. Here you have this wild story about how you had a single airline employee working for Japan Airlines. His bosses said, listen, we're sending these giant cargo planes full of electronics and VCRs over to North America. We need to be able to send something back to Japan that's high value, that warrants for all that all that fuel, all that time. And so this employee went out, he went looking, and he found that in Prince Edward Island, there was a, a historic bluefin tuna fishery. And right. he partnered with this rum, like a former rum runner. And that day in, in August 1972, a cargo plane of chilled giant Atlantic bluefin tuna was trucked from PEI to JFK in New York. It was flown directly to Skiji Fish Market in Tokyo, and those fish sold for $18 a pound. And that meant each fish was about $52,000 for one fish in today's dollars. And so yeah. they called this the day of the flying fish. Yeah. Sadly, I mean, it's a great story, but sadly, it does sort of flag what's coming, uh, which is sort of refrigeration on the sea, the ability to catch just huge amounts of bluefin because it's in so much demand. And it's mm -hmm. sort of and it sort of is a precursor to what comes next. Yeah. And that's why I actually have an uncle who works in big seafood. And I gave him an early copy of this book. And I, I was like, just let me know if I come down too hard on capitalism, like global capitalism, because I, I, I really do blast these systems, right? Of of the technology that was being invented, the ability to freeze massive tons of fish at sea, you know, the systems, the airplanes that would go up into the, into the sky, spot the tuna schools from the air. And that meant that a purse saner could just follow those coordinates, come out with their giant nets and just net up hundreds of tons of fish at once. And in a lot of those cases, the smaller fish, the not ideal fish, 
other species. They would catch them. Those species would would die in the nets and they just throw them away. And I do really do refer to that as the charnel of industrialization. And I think it was, it's, the writing was on the wall. And even in the seventies, there were environmentalists saying, what do you think is going to happen? But the commercial value of this fish was just too, too tempting. Yeah, there, there is, uh, as you point out in your book early on, there is no apex predator like us. Uh, Karen Pynchon is with us, an investigative food systems journalist. We're talking about her first book called Kings of Their Own Ocean, Tuna, Obsession, and the Future of Our Seas, that focuses on one particular conservationist slash fisherman uh, named Al Anderson, one tuna called Amelia, after Amelia Earhart, who literally like travels right back and forth across the Atlantic, showing us just from the example of one, one bluefin tuna, the remarkable uh, lives these fish live and what they do, and also just woven into it a bunch about what happened to the bluefin tuna over time, its lack of popularity other than as a sport fish, then its huge popularity as we now know today, and of course what that did to bluefin tuna stocks. Karen Pynchon is with us, investigative food systems journalist. Uh, Her first book is called Kings of Their Own Ocean. It's about tuna. The subtitle is Tuna Obsession in the Future of Our Seas. Karen, at one point, I think a lot of people recognize pretty quickly that that the systems that are in place to try to protect these the bluefin aren't going to work because the bluefin moves in a way that that makes it sort of transnational and all our systems mm-hmm. for protecting them were sort of set up around boundaries and they just uh, at what point do we start to really figure that out so this is one of these myths that i try to bust in the book there's this idea that there's only two stocks of tuna that one kind of belongs to the mediterranean and one belongs to canada and the united states along the east coast And I kind of use the analogy of King Solomon wanting to cut the baby in half, right? Because the writing was on the wall. The United States saw that, that the fishing levels were unsustainable. And the U.S. basically said, let's just draw a line in the middle. And what's on that side is yours. And what's yeah. on our side is is ours. And, you know, it was framed as this scientific determination. It was literally just one guy being like, let's just draw a line. How hard can it be? Yeah, we, we but, see what that happened, what, what the, how that works other, on, on continents even, right? So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And so you have this challenge where, yeah, it's roaming so widely. So there is an organization called ICAT. It works on the conservation and protection of tuna. But I use the analogy that it was like a wolf in secretarial glasses. Because the idea was that it was the industry trying to regulate itself before governments came down hard and said, listen, you can't catch this fish anymore. It's endangered. And so you had the scientists saying, you know, Maybe this year you should only catch 10,000 tons and they would all meet together and then all the data would go into this black box. And then, you know, surprise, surprise, these this body says, well, this year we think we should be able to catch 30,000 tons. And so it was just completely disconnected from from the reality. And that meant that environmentalists, including uh, one man named Carl Safina, who I I kind of give his biography in the book and his struggles with some of the bluefin scientists, he basically said, listen, we need to stop international trade. And that kind of set off this whole new era in, in what you and I may recognize, which is save the bluefin, don't eat bluefin tuna, don't support this kind of corrupt, unsustainable industry. And, and that's how tuna, I've seen tuna my whole life. 
Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's It's been, we've had that idea for a very long time, and yet it's still incredibly prized. I mean, you see it on menus far wider now than you would have 30 years ago. I mean, the idea that it's become a prized part of a what is really now sort of a luxury cuisine uh, in many ways, it means that the demand for it, I mean, you still see those auctions. I guess the fact they catch a little bit less of it now means the prices are even higher, but it feels like the demand is still out there. Is it being better conserved is the conservation working better now than it has yeah. in the past? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and it's one that was front of my mind. I honestly was not expecting this book to be a good news book. I've been climate in you know reporting on climate change for the past twenty years. You know there are very few good news stories, but believe it or not, in this case with Bluefin, a lot of those environmental choices we made, a lot of the the data that's going into feeding the models that's spitting out how many of these fish we we can catch and still see a rebuilding of the stock. As recently as five years ago, the criminal market for tuna was worth around $18 million Canadian annually. And these are tuna that are being caught and essentially trafficked by organized crime you know, the danger with having a, a fish that's worth this much money is that that you you'd have this demand that governments can't control. Now, the good news is that, you know, a lot of that crime, there have been crackdowns. You have the scientific system called Harvest Strategies. It essentially uses, including some data that's coming out of the University of British Columbia, where it essentially uses these high-level mathematical algorithms to take the politics completely out of it. And so you you can't have countries like Japan, or in one case, Libya, actually harpooned the protection of the species. There's all these kind of international intrigues. Right. You know, I, I feel completely fine after talking to numerous scientists, going to my local sushi counter and ordering Atlantic caught bluefin tuna, rod and reel or harpooned. You know, that in a lot of cases, that's a better fish to be eating than a lot of other species right now. And so can you imagine, you know, Atlantic bluefin tuna as the ethical choice? Incredible. I, and yet we we spoke to about some of the other challenges that tuna face. Um, I was mentioning earlier that there'd been a story or just earlier this month that the first ever sort of 200 pound bluefin tuna washed up around where I am further in, I mean, uh, on Vancouver Island, but not out, not out at sea, so to speak, but further in. And they had never seen one here before. We've been talking a lot about how much the oceans have been warming this year, um, specifically oceans where the, where the bluefin tends to spend a lot of its time, like the North Atlantic. Uh, that must be a concern as well as to where exactly what's going to happen to these stocks because they see, they seem like they're incredibly fine tuned to their environment and very aware of what their environment is doing. That's why they swim such great distances to find ideal spots. Yeah, and they have these amazing kind of ways of perceiving their environment. They actually have a little window in the top of their head called the pineal window that senses light that they can use to go up and down, kind of in the in the evening and the and the morning. But yeah, so climate change. This is one of these rare species that it might be insulated for the short and medium term by its physiology. It breeds in warm waters. It likes warm waters. You know, it can't breed past 29 degrees Celsius. But that means if there's, you know, a part of the ocean that's too warm, you know, it can find a part, a patch that maybe is a little bit less warm. And if needed, it can head straight back out into the North Atlantic, which is still quite cold, right? And so, in the short term, it's protected. And that's why you're seeing it, for instance, up near coastal BC, which is, you know, it hasn't been seen in generations in some cases. I would really caution, though, is that just because we're seeing the fish in new places, 
doesn't mean it's not disappearing from others. And this is one of the dangers of the seas that very often the evidence that we work on is, is anecdotal. And I think it puts so much more of an onus on us to make good choices in the context of not just our lifetimes, but in, in many other lifetimes. And that honestly, at the heart of it is what inspired me about Al. I use a quote from Oscar Wilde at the beginning of one chapter that, that the man who can see the dawn, you know, he has to travel by moonlight. And that that is both his punishment and his reward. Yeah. And so trying to capture, you know, the life of one complex person in the context of this complex species, you know, it was both a joy and a real challenge. Yeah, and I, 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 I don't want to give too much away again, but but Al passed away. People will know this, perhaps, but Al passed away, I guess, just as you were starting or just before you started working on this book. So his shadow is sort of his legacy hangs over hangs over a lot of what you've written. And Amelia, too, was who was caught more than once and tagged, is eventually caught and killed in the Medi- in uh, in the Mediterranean as well. Yeah, and it's those two kind of conjoined lives. You know, I'm sure you might have fishermen in your I social don't. circle. I, yeah, you don't. I don't, well, I don't unfortunately. <laughs> That's I, I know little about. I mean, I know a little bit from reading, but I don't know much about fish. Yeah, it's almost like a psychic understanding. In order to be a good fisherman or a good angler, there needs to be this ability to almost see the world through the fish's eyes. And fishermen and women have this. It almost makes them the most beautifully poised to be the fish's best advocate because they can do what I tried to do in this book, which is say, you know, this is the lived experience. And if we understand that lived experience, I like to think like collectively us as a society can do a better job of protecting these species that do again, feel kind of like aliens on earth. Right. Well, they certainly look at, and I take that back. Actually, someone I worked with quite a while is an excellent uh, fisherman. We just don't talk about it much because obviously I was, I had nothing to offer to his. Uh, well, to now his you'll character. have something to offer. Uh, something offer. And, and there's a reason though why we should all pay attention to this. And, and you do talk about something called trophic cascade, whereby, you know, the tuna is, is a very important, the bluefin is an important part of the whole ecosystem out there, despite its, despite that it lives in many different places. It plays an important role in the whole chain of things. Yeah. And this is part of, you know, it is this apex predator. It eats jellyfish and all these, all these other types of ocean fish. But there have been really excellent studies done that actually show even just as down to the seaweeds and the the phytoplankton that you could find, uh, you know, in, in a patch of ocean is that these systems are so finely tuned they're so old, right? They're millions of millions of years old and such hubris of us as humans to say, you know, we know exactly what's going on, which, you know, a lot of people were saying before the cod collapse. Yeah, I mean, that's, I was thinking a lot about the cod collapse while, while reading this one, because as you mentioned, I think there's one line where uh, someone writes an obituary for a certain form of, of, of allocation for catches and just says, essentially, I mean, this was all invented based on almost nothing. I mean, almost nothing. We yes. just didn't understand, if, didn't understand if, the so impact if, we could have. Yeah. If anyone is interested in this, there's an idea called maximum sustainable yield. And it has been blasted by academics, including UBC's Daniel Pauly. It's this idea, essentially, that we're doing the fish a favor because at a certain point, the species, you know, maxes out its food supply. And so any fish that are born after that point are kind of bonus. And this was essentially one man's post-war idea in the 1940s and 50s. And then all of a sudden, look, it becomes, you know, scientific policy. 
you spent years doing this. What what was your big? I mean, this is a very very sometimes a very difficult question, but you must have taken away something from it that you had no idea you would take away when you started. I think watching one of the chapters takes place in the south of Spain and seeing the the physical, emotional, cultural connection when a society evolves alongside bluefin is just it gave me goosebumps. It's this kind of man versus fish they used to kill them almost one-on-one imagine like using a a small knife and just cutting a major artery it was this kind of bloody pantomime i guess and a lot of people when i tell that story they say oh ew i'll never eat bluefin again but after reporting this book being able to see that it seems like a a, like a beautiful maybe the only truly sustainable way to to catch and kill this fish is throwing off the shackles of industrialization, right? And to make it a fair fight again, you mean? Exactly. Exactly. Like evening the playing field in a way that that through our technology we don't hold supremacy over everything. And honestly, I think the other takeaway was that there is still some mystery in the world. You know, we don't understand the bluefin tuna entirely. And I think instead of letting that constrain how we protect it, I think that beauty and that mystery should be an additional reason why we should. I think society is changing in terms of how it how it regards those those issues, which is really, really hopeful. Well, Karen, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me on. 